Well, good morning. This is a great morning because I get to wrap up a series that I've been thoroughly enjoying. I hope you've been enjoying it as much as I have. Seven signs that you know you're on the right track. If you've missed any, I really encourage you to go online and listen to them. If you got like six out of seven, that's not bad, but we like seven out of seven. So if you missed one, go and catch up. Some folks make sure that those are posted on there for you. The other day I was telling somebody a story about my first traffic ticket. Anybody ever gotten a speeding ticket or am I the only one here? Oh, the state's doing all right. Where did this budget shortfall come from? They've been collecting from you. I've actually had more than one, but the first speeding ticket I got is the one that bothers me the most. I was 16 years old, so it was like half of my life ago. I was driving my parents' car. My brother, my older brother had asked me if I would take him up and drop him off at Lake Tahoe. Now, I drove from Sacramento to Lake Tahoe and back just to do a favor to my older brother. Yeah, right. I was 16. I just wanted to drive. It had nothing to do with my brother. But I agreed to drive him up there and drive right back. And I'm driving my parents' car. Drove up to Tahoe. It was a nice sunny day. Dropped off my brother. I'm driving back all alone. I got the windows down. It must have been the middle of the summertime. And I was going through the back roads. You know, if you take Highway 88 and you can go the old Mormon immigrant trail, there's a, there's a highway there. And, and it goes through all these little towns, and it's a, it's a fun drive. And I was in it for the drive, so I went the back roads. Well, when you go through those little towns, as you probably know, they drop the speed limit significantly. So you're going, you know, 55 miles an hour is the speed limit, and you're going like 65 on these windy roads, you know. And there's just two lanes, one going this way, one going that way. And there's hardly anybody out there. It's mostly empty. Even the small towns, you usually don't even see a human being when you go through them. I don't know who lives there and what they do, but you never even see anybody on the street. So I go through this small town. I was really careful to drop down to just the right speed. But as I went through the town, one of the things that happened is I picked up a car in front of me. Somehow, when I went into the town, there was no car in front of me. And somebody pulled in, and and now I had a car in front of me. So as I left the town, the speed goes back up. So it goes from like 25 to 35 to 45, and then pretty soon it says 55 again. The problem is the car in front of me never got over 45. They just stayed at 45. I don't know who was in the car, I don't know, young, old, doesn't matter. But they went 45 miles an hour. I'm 16 years old, I'm on a joyride, and 45 is not nearly fast enough. We're just outside of town, and I'm thinking, surely they're going to speed up soon. They must still be just thinking, you know, small town, we've got to go slow. I drove for about a mile behind these guys, 45 miles an hour is as fast as they went. And I thought, there's no way I'm driving back to Sacramento, 45 miles an hour, right behind these guys. So a nice straight spot came up. Dad always taught me when you drive, you know, dotted line, you, know, you, can, you can go around them, do a blow-by. And when I was a kid, it was always fun to see Dad do a blow-by. So I'm 16, first blow-by, here we go. So my dad had always told me, you've got to back off a little bit so you can get up ahead of steam so when you pass them, you're not just, you know, staying over there too long. So I did my textbook blow-by. I backed off a little ways, let them get ahead, so I'm going like 35. And then once they got way ahead of me, I zoomed up and I, and I got going. I was probably going about 60 miles an hour by the time I got ready to pass. Boom, I jumped over into the other lane. I was only over there for a minute. Probably got up to about 75 and then boom, right back in front of them. It was like the textbook blow by. I was feeling really good until I heard that sound that we all hate to hear. 
and I looked in my rearview mirror and saw the sight that you hate to hear or see with the sound. The lights, the police officer, he's hot on my tail, like he's got a live one. And so I pull over to the side, and it's, a, it's the sheriff from the, the county that I was in. And he tells me he saw me come through. And he's been following me since I left town. And he just knew that I was going to speed, and in fact, I did. And so he's sitting there writing that ticket, and he, he looks at my license. I've had my license for about four weeks. And so he starts reading me the riot act about how dangerous it is to speed and how many people die every year. And, I, I mean, it was like a five-minute lecture I got from the guy. I felt about that big, and I left that situation. In my heart, I was angry because I felt like I was justified in passing these people. And I felt like if I had gone 55 when I passed them at 45, it would have been dangerous. And to this day, all these years later, 18 years later, I'm still bitter about it. I can't get over it. And I don't know about you if you've ever gotten a ticket where you just like you feel like there's just something was wrong in the universe and it'll never be made right. And maybe every time I tell somebody else, it'll make me feel a little bit better. I've told this story at least a dozen times. I don't feel any better. Let it go. But I'll tell you, as much as I'm still holding on to that and trying to work through it, and thank you, I will try and take that advice and let it go. One of the things that that taught me is that there is a big difference between compliance and obedience. You see, I can comply with the police officer when he's telling me what an idiot I am and he gives me a ticket and I got to pay it or you got to show up. I can obey the law to that extent. That's not really obedience. That's compliance. In other words, I changed what I was doing in order to comply with what I was demanded to do by the police officer. I aligned myself with what he said I had to do at that moment. I've done multiple blow-bys since then. I don't think any of them have ever been under 65 miles an hour. You see, I didn't actually decide that he was right, and I needed to listen to the authority that had been put over me. What I did was I complied with what I needed to do to get through that situation so I could get back to life the way I think it should be. That's not obedience. That's compliance. And I've thought about that many times since. What does it mean to obey? And is obedience the same thing as compliance? I'll tell you what makes you think of it more than anything when you have a child. Because children do this all the time. They can comply without any thought for obedience. I don't know what it feels like to be a highway patrol officer or someone giving the ticket. They must feel similarly. They probably wish people would obey instead of just comply. But I think that that's a problem each one of us has in our relationship with the Lord and with what God calls us to do. We do more compliance than we do obedience. 1 Samuel 15.22 says, Obedience is better than sacrifice. Oftentimes we want to make some sacrifices. We want to change a little here, change a little there. That's compliance. And God's not asking you to comply with the truth of Scripture. He's asking you to obey. He's asking me to obey. And that's much more difficult to do than to simply comply. 
You know, there's a lot of reasons why we do the things we do in life, and most of them are selfish. Most of us, the way we treat the Word of God is the way we treat everything else in life, including the speeding laws. We put it on the table in front of us, and we we look at all the options out there, and we say, I could do this, 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 or this. The law says I should drive 55. I'll take that into consideration, and I do. I get on the highway, it says 55. I go, well, I probably shouldn't go more than... Ah, 65, right? 65 is about right if it says 55. And we put all the options in front of us, and we sit and we judge the way life should work. That's the way most of us live our lives. We know what they say. We know what God's Word says. We know what our friends say. And we've got all this stuff out in front of us, and then we pick and choose according to what we think is best. It's the American way. You are the king of your universe. You're in control. You're in charge. You're the most important person you know. So choose wisely. Do well. And at the end of the day, to each his own, I'm not going to judge what you pick and you shouldn't judge me. That's the world we live in. But does that philosophy of life line up with God's word? Is that what God bought you for? Is that what God purchased you by his blood for? So that you can look at all of his commands and decrees that you can look at God's Word and say, here's the parts I'm going to choose to comply with. Here's the parts that I'm going to work with you on, God. I'll meet you halfway on that one. And you know what I'm talking about is true because there's things in your life where you know that God wants you to do something differently or more fervently or with more graciousness in your heart, and you don't do it because it doesn't seem right to you. What seems right to you is a few degrees to the left or to the right of that. And we sit. And we judge. To truly obey requires a death to self. It requires submission. It requires yielding. Those are the true signs of obedience. And unless those are present, obedience is not present. It's compliance dressed up like obedience. We obey not because we like or agree with the circumstances, but because we agree with the one who has authority to change them which is God. As long as your obedience is contingent on circumstances, you will never truly obey. You can only comply. It's the best you can do. You have to take the circumstances out. You have to look at what God's truth says. In the Word of God, if He says, do it, we do it. Not because we agree or disagree. Not because convenient or inconvenient. Not because everybody else is or isn't doing it. Those don't matter. You do it because the one who asked you to do it is right and He's just. And he's good. And you believe those things by faith and you live them out. And that's obedience. And that's what God asks of each and every one of us. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. That's a pretty simple statement. Do you love me? Obey my commandments. If you don't love me, it'll be obvious you're not obeying my commandments. How simple is that? You know, it's possible to obey Jesus' words and not love Him. But it's not possible to love Him and to not obey His commandments. We can pretend a lot of things. And we can make it look good. But if you truly love Jesus, you will obey. We oftentimes say, if I agree with you, then I'll obey. If there's a payoff for me, if my life's going to go better, I'll obey. Somebody said to me, based on a sermon that 
I preached recently on this sermon series. What if I align my life with God and things don't go well? It seemed to me when you were preaching the other day, you made it sound like if I align my my life with God, everything's going to go well. Plenty of proof in the Bible that that is not true. Look at Job. Look at the prophets of old. Book of Hebrews tells us some of them were sawed in two. These were people who had poured out their life for God, aligned with God. The Bible doesn't say everything's going to be cozy and go well. But what it does promise is that it will be good. And good is not always happy. Good is not always feeling the right way. Sometimes what's good for you hurts. Sometimes what's good for you is discipline. Sometimes what's good for you is a major adjustment in life. God is always good. But He's not always fun. So why do you obey Jesus? What are your motivations for aligning your life with God's Word? When you hear a sermon series like the one we're currently in, and we talk about seven different signs that you're doing what God created you to do, and you make life changes, what's the motivation behind that? Is it the reward? Is it the fear of punishment? Is it so that you can look good in front of others? Or do you simply obey Jesus because you love Him? That's what he said. If you obey me, or if you love me, you'll obey. You know, I hope that you answer that question carefully because it'd be real easy to sit here this morning and go, I think I I obey because I love him. I'm good. But the Word of God says this in Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Don't be quick to give yourself a pass. Listen to what God's Spirit says to you this morning. Because God wants to make some corrections in your life. Some adjustments. Some changes. God is good. Might not be fun. Might not be comfortable. But it will be good. And 1 Samuel 16, 7 reminds us of this. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. What's in your heart? Is there pride? I'll tell you what, that's what makes me want to still be mad at that police officer from 18 years ago. It's pride. I think I'm right and he's wrong. Is there selfishness in your heart? Is there bitterness, anger? Is there entitlement in your heart? What is it that causes you to not be able to align with God's word, to say that he is good, even when the outcome from following that truth is not what you want? Is there humility? Is there submissiveness? Is there trust and respect in your heart? Because those are the things that open the door to obedience. Trust in God. Humility to put yourself behind the truth of God instead of in front of it. To not judge God's truth, but to let God's truth judge you. That's what God's looking for. This morning I want to turn to Luke chapter 1. Verses 26 to 56. And I'll tell you what. In preparing this sermon, I I searched for one person in the Word of God who lived out obedience in such a way that this morning we could take a look at that person's life and learn what true obedience looks like. And there were some great candidates. I mean, some of you have been studying the Bible for years and you know there's some... Some pillars of the faith 
that we could look at and we could say, wow, now that's obedience. But I narrowed it down to just one this morning. Luke chapter 1, 26 to 56, we read about Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I hate to say it, but it's probably a backlash that Protestants have against the Catholic tradition. We don't talk about Mary hardly ever. In fact, even as a preacher, I I can only name maybe one or two times that I've ever even preached about Mary. She was a phenomenal woman. Chosen amongst all the women of the world to do something incredible. But as we read this morning, we'll discover why God chose Mary. Her heart was humble and she was willing to obey. Uh, Turn with me to Luke chapter 1, 26 to 56. We won't read all of it. I'm just going to read a selection. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. You know, it's easy to read this story and think about the nativity, to think about Christmas time, and that's about the only time we ever refer to Mary. She's kind of a, a just a part player in the big picture of Jesus coming to the earth. But as I read this, there's some things that jump out to me that I think are very significant as I as I try and understand what it looks like to be obedient. Verse 27 and 31, we read these statements. To a virgin pledged to be married. And then in 31, you will be with child and give birth to a son. Mary was a teenage girl living in a small town 2,000 years ago in a very different world than the one we live in today. And I just want you to, to think with me for a moment what it must have been like to be in her shoes. Put yourself in Mary's place this morning. Imagine that you were that teenage girl in this small town. 2,000 years ago, when you had heard of people who had been stoned to death or killed for committing adultery, for having sex outside of marriage. She lives in this small town, young. And as I think about her age and the way she responds to this, I'm reminded that the Bible tells us that we should all have faith like a child. Her faith is so simple here. She doesn't seem to get caught up in all the what-ifs and why-me's. She just listens to the Word of God. And fear springs up in her heart, and she says, how can this be? 
And the angel assures her that God is in control. And she obeys. A simple faith. And I wonder how sometimes you and I might complicate faith a little bit too much. We try and get a little bit too theological with God. If this, then that. And we're, and we're trying to push at the extremes and say, God, is this really right? Is this really good? When we should just simply obey what God tells us to do. Trusting God comes from a childlike faith. And if your faith has gotten so mature in your own way of thinking that you can't trust because you've got so much questioning in your heart, you need to return to a childlike faith. Trust God. Trust God. He will do good things in your life. I'm reminded too that she was engaged. Engagement in her world is a little different than ours. Now, engagement's a big deal. For those of you engaged, I don't want to belittle it at all, but in her time, this was a legally binding contract that they had entered into. It included the whole family. And not only their family, but the whole village, that whole town knew about this. This was public knowledge. And for her to violate that contract was extremely serious. This wasn't just a, oh, I fell out of love, I've changed my mind, here's your ring back. This was serious business. The whole family was involved. She would need the permission of her father to break off the engagement. And he would need to go and make arrangements with the, the father of Joseph, the groom, and speak to Joseph. There would have to be a lot of parties involved. She couldn't just break that off easily. So she was involved. She wasn't married. She hadn't gotten married yet. But she was spoken for. She was committed. And the relationship she was in was just that close to committed for life. She had no business being involved with anybody else, let alone winding up pregnant. And I think about how it must have felt for Mary as a teenage girl. A little different world than the one we live in now. She was engaged. She was getting ready to have a family. She kind of knew where she was going next. She knew who Joseph was. She had a life. She wasn't just somebody who goes, well, I have no life, whatever. This is going to be crazy, but I'm pregnant and I'll just deal with it as it comes. She had a pretty nice life. Somebody wanted to marry her. The arrangements had all been made. I know you've got a busy life. You've got dreams. You've got some things that you don't want God to mess with. Well, God came and messed with things big time in her life. She's an engaged young woman. I can't be pregnant. She could not go there. That was not even a possibility for her. And that's exactly what God was saying he wanted for her. Very inconvenient for her to be in that place. Very humiliating to even consider. What would everybody think when they knew that this teenage girl who had committed herself to Joseph couldn't even stay pure? Now she's got a baby. Oh, sure, she could tell him, well, the, the, the angel came and he told me this was going to happen and God did this to me. But seriously... Who's going to believe that? Can you imagine if somebody said that to you? God came and visited me. That's why I'm pregnant. Sure. This has never happened before in the history of the world. What are the chances that you marry this little teenage girl in one little corner of the world? That that really happened? I mean, nowhere in this text do we find anywhere that says Mary was stupid. 
She could connect the dots. She knew the implications of this. I wind up pregnant. I'm engaged. I'm a teenager. Obviously, everyone's going to connect those dots and say she got carried away. She made a, a poor decision. She got herself knocked up. That's what we'd say now. Girl went the wrong direction. She knew that. And this was God speaking to her and asking her to obey His will for her life. That's not an easy ask. Not easy to obey. And I wonder, how would you reply if God came to you in that same way today? Now, God doesn't necessarily send angels to come and deliver messages in our day. He's got the Holy Spirit that does that. Not that He couldn't. But typically, God would come to a person today if He wants them to make a life change. And He would convict them through the Holy Spirit that indwells them and say, you need to make a change. Here's what I have for you. And we would say, amen to that. God, I will obey you as long as, and depending on your life and mine, we set up parameters. I'm not willing to give up my job. I, don't, I won't move. I, I will and won't do certain things. But if it fits within what I will do, let's talk. I guarantee you this did not fit into Mary's comfort zone. Way outside of that. God asked her to give up everything. To give up her relationship with everybody she'd ever known in her town who is now going to ostracize her. To disappoint her parents. To disappoint the one she was betrothed to, Joseph. To be ridiculed. To lose any opportunity probably to ever get married again. She was going to have to be a single mom and raise this child. She would probably have to go to a different town and she would probably not be offered any kind of a decent life. Destitute. What if God came and gave you that offer? How would you respond? Wouldn't you say, well, God, you know, I really, I mean, I do love you. And there's no doubt I love you. But that's a big ask. You know, I'm on this journey, God, and I'm, I'm over here. And I'm really not that mature yet. Can you check back with me in a little while? Because someday I aspire to be that kind of obedient, but I'm just not there yet. I mean, isn't that what we do with God? We negotiate. I just can't do that. It's too much. So then in verse 38, it's kind of shocking when we read the reply of Mary to God's ask. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. That's obedience. She didn't argue. She didn't negotiate. She just adjusted herself to that. And by faith, believed that God would take care of her. May it be as you have said. That's obedience. That's faith. That's trust. That's humility. That's a great example for you and I of what it looks like to reply to God's calling in our life. To respond to what the Holy Spirit is asking you to do. When God's Spirit asks you to make an adjustment in your life, the best response you could give is, may it be as you have said. I'll do it. Oh, it might cost me my house or my job or my... I'll do it. No matter the cost, God, what do you want from me? I'll do it. Now, Mary may have been mindful that whole time that God would take care of her and would provide. But she doesn't get into that here. Says she was afraid. Says the angel reassured her. And she said, I'll do it. Bring it on. Let's have a baby. And so she did. 
You know, Mary goes on in this passage to tell us what it is that was in her heart that drew her to God that day. We know it today as Mary's song. It's in verses 46 to 55. I'm just going to read a portion here. And it says, And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in my God, in God my Savior, for He has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. From now on, all the generations will, be, will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as He said to our fathers. Again, I want to pull out some things from what she said there. She mentioned the humble state of His servant. She mentioned the humility that God was drawn to in her own heart. She mentioned those who fear God, and she was not only humble, but she was one who feared God. And fear doesn't just mean here that when God comes around, I tremble in fear because He's unpredictable. It's not that kind of fear. It's a holy reverence. It's a wow. I can't believe that little old me is that close to perfection, to power and might. It could consume me. That kind of fear. Recognizing God for who He truly is. And the great distance between His holiness and our sinfulness. It says, He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. God looks at the deepest thought that you have. Not just the peripheral. Not just what people can see on the outside. But God looks at the core of who you are. And if He sees pride, because He scatters the proud. God doesn't deal with pride. He scatters pride. He deals with humility. And then she says that he lifted up the humble. The theme here, humility, fear, humility, those are the things that God is drawn to. Those are the things that God enjoys. Those are the people that God works through. If there's pride in your life, it'll keep you from being obedient. If there's humility in your life, it will free you up to be the man or woman God created you to be. And we've spent seven weeks talking through the different things that are signs that you're on the right track. I think our job as a church is to speak truth into your life so that you know whether you're on the right track or not. But one thing nobody can do for you is to obey. That's the part you have to do. You have to take that information and you've got to adjust to it. And the only way you can make that adjustment in a way that pleases God is out of obedience. If you simply comply... If I could scare you into complying because something horrible is going to happen if you don't, I don't believe that's going to bring any joy to God whatsoever. He wants your heart. He wants your affection. He wants your trust. He wants your faith. That's what God wants from you. He wants you to love Him. He wants you to obey Him. This morning I want to close by quickly going through the last six weeks, the different signs that we looked at. The reason I want to do this is in a moment the worship team is going to come back up and they're going to lead us in one last song. And when they do, some of the prayer team is going to come up front and they're going to give you an opportunity to pray. Whether you come forward for prayer or you stay where you're at, whether you sing the song that's up on the screen or you take some time to just talk to the Lord, here's what I want you to do. I want you to have a conversation with God and I want you to ask Him, Lord, what is it that you want me 
to do? You want me to change something? You want me to reach out to somebody? What do you want me to do? And then respond to that in obedience. Not compliance. Not because you feel compelled because everybody else is doing it, but because of obedience. Use this as an opportunity to experience obedience like Mary experienced obedience. So week one, we talked about being intentional. I said this is the place where knowing and doing become one. You know something, and then you do it. Make a plan. Passage was Luke six forty six. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not and do not do what I say? You can't follow God and not do what He says. It's incompatible. Are you a Christ follower? Do what He says. Have a plan. Can you articulate your plan for spiritual growth this year? And have you signed up for a spiritual assessment? If not, those are things we've made available here. Every person at Restlife should be able to say, here's my plan to grow this year. If you don't know how to do that, sign up for a spiritual assessment. You can do it at the welcome table. You can send us an email online. We sent clipboards around a couple weeks ago. Do you have a plan? Number two, be relational. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, encourage one another and build each other up. One of the biggest factors in your ability to live the truth of Scripture is whether or not you have somebody else who's willing to live it out with you. Do you have an accountability partner? Do you have a mentor? Is anybody locked arms with you so that they can help you be that man or that woman that God created you to be? Do you have a regular accountability mentor partner? Thirdly, we talked about being communal. We said community is more than proximity. Sitting next to each other on Sunday morning like this is not community. Community is about being together in relationship and sharing life together. Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not let us give up meeting together. It's important that we're together because together is where we come to where we can actually know each other, support each other. There are certain things that you can do here that nobody else can do. Certain things I can do that you can't do. We all need each other. We're part of a body. Do you miss church more than you miss work? There's a lot of people in our culture today that they're pretty regular at showing up for work, school. But when it comes to church, well, I miss it all the time. I mean, a busy life, right? Well, if you're that busy, you probably need to make some changes. Because the truth of the matter is, if you're not here, we can't do your part for you. It, it gets left undone. And that's a shame when God's body can't function because of your absence. You need to get more actively involved and what God's doing through the church. Uh, number four, a call to action. Be active. I said sometimes we're all talk and no action. James 1.22 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. What is it that you need to do? What action do you need to take in order to actively serve God? Number five is be aligned. We talked about staying on track with God's plan. And if you do, you'll be a blessing and not a curse to your world. I said even the dirt in your front yard will be more blessed if you align with God. Deuteronomy 28, 1 and 2. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow His commands, all these blessings will come upon you. And then number six, last week we said, 
Be empowered. It takes power. It takes God's power to live the life that He called you to. We cannot do what we intend to do, what we commit to do without the power of God. It's just not possible. He asked you to do a God-sized mission. If you do it in a human-sized power, it won't work. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. God's power turns on the moment your power turns off. You have to be humble, because in weakness you find your strength. So there's set six different things that you can do. And then number seven is obedience, how you respond. And you guys could start in on that last song. I'd like to encourage you during this entire song. Spend some time talking to the Lord. Prayer team, if you guys would come forward, if you'd like to pray with somebody else, if you feel led to get up and, and go and pray for somebody else who's sitting in their seat, I encourage you to do that as well. This is an opportunity for us to live in obedience to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.
may you take the work that you have done by your Holy Spirit this morning through the words of Pastor Dan. May you take the work that you have done, Lord, and seal it in our hearts today. Lord, as we depart, may we depart as men and women are truly changed, truly committed, Lord, to take a stand for you and to obey you with all that we can do, all that we have. We love you, Lord. We bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before you go, I just wanted to remind you guys about the 40 days. It's going to be starting next week. I believe uh, when I was up here before, I said two weeks from now. That was just to test you to see how well you knew your calendar. So um, it's actually next week, March 1st. So uh, get that ready to go. If you guys aren't in a small group, all the information is right there three to 25 feet to your left. So go see those boards before you go. Sign up for one of those. Even if you're already involved in a small group, sign up on those lists so we can get a head count of who's involved. And see the back table with the computer with internet access to get your RestLifeOnline.com account. Do that throughout this week, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye.